We want to take a second to thank you for supporting Womance by listening to our podcast. One great way that you can continue supporting us, including those listens, is hitting subscribe, telling a friend, leaving a review. That stuff all really matters. Sharing it on your personal social media is another great way to spread the word about Womance. And another option for supporting us, if we may be so bold, is to recommend going to our Patreon, where you can donate as little as a dollar a month to help us spread the word of woe. If you want to contribute more than a dollar a month, which obviously no pressure, whatever you've got, we are so appreciative to have, but we have awesome gifts for you. If you want a hand addressed letter from Morgan and Isabeau, maybe with some special woe stickers other merch just uh, visit our patreon we are womance on patreon or is it patreon.com forward slash womance we would be very proud to call you one of our patrons Isabel. And I'm Morgan. And this is Romance. A podcast about romance novels. About apple orchards. About river navigation. About Vikings. About Saxons. About melding of cultures so one cannot be truly oppressed or colonized. <laughs> about fixer-uppers of all sorts. But mostly, it's about that first thing. Romance novels and ourselves. That was the best. I managed to make elves uh, about six paragraphs long, so I am taking credit for that uh, success. Credit where credit's due. Um. So this week we are discovering a nun for the Viking warrior by Lucy Morris. And this is a category romance from Harlequin Historicals. Love that H on H, Harlequin Historicals. There's a lot of heaving bosoms implied in that Harlequin Historical. It's the least punchy alliterative consonant. (laughs) H, it is. Harlequin Historicals historicals Lynn manuel miranda talked to terry gross about it about h in a later alliteration yeah and how hard it is to hit that sound in uh lyric ends and so he tries to never start a lyric with h a phrase mm-hmm. well how about that who knew it's a very good interview he references a lot of other stuff. Do you know what I hate? What do you hate? Interviews with actors. <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking the last time I listened to Terry Gross, she was interviewing, what's his name? He was the valet and like the star of Downton Abbey from High Maintenance and Legion. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And he's worked on so many interesting projects. I just see him as someone who, like, probably has, like, very interesting taste. But the thing about being an actor is, except for a very specific subsect known as improvisers, not necessarily known for being articulate on their own. And it's just, oh, it's it's very rare that they're, like, actually interesting or insightful. But I think the other thing about actors is that they're, like, beautiful to behold and so people always look at them as if they're fascinated with what they have to say Mm -hmm. and so I think there's a lot of unearned confidence there in what they have to say and NPR interviews really make this clear but do you know who's a great Terry Gross interview who Alec Baldwin because it's so unhinged and unself-aware he is deeply unhinged. 
I also imagine that Nicolas Cage would be fun to interview. But you bring up a really good point about this like beauty quotient and how like that doesn't necessarily matter on the radio as much because it was making me think of this meme, which I love and everyone should look it up. It's actually a GIF where an interviewer uh, it's with Keira Knightley and uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, and it's right as the Alan Turing movie, movie is coming out. And the interviewer says to Keira Knightley, "Oh, you're looking a you're looking a bit tired." And she's so like doesn't even register. And like then uh, Benedict Cumberbatch leans forward and he's like, "You're talking to one of the most beautiful women on planet Earth." And then she leans all the way forward and she's like, "Yeah, fuck off." <laughs> And I was like, I think Benedict Cumberbatch has had to learn how to be more articulate because he's got such a weird fucking face. And maybe Keira Knightley hasn't, you know, and so like it takes her a beat in real time situations to answer insults. But it's one of my favorite gifts. I don't know. I never know how to respond when people tell me I look sick or tired. Also, Benedict Cumberbatch, I'm not so sure. He hasn't had uh, the sheltered life of a beautiful to behold person because he certainly puts his foot in his mouth on the reg all the way in. He's had an incredibly resourced life. Like, you know, his ancestors did own slaves in sugar plantations in the Caribbean. And his grandmother wanted him to have a stage name lest any of them seek reparations. And yeah. he told this story and it was like, wow. And everyone was like, good for you, Benedict Cumberbatch. And I was like, yeah, are you paying the reparations now? <laughs> Are you putting out the welcome mat for people to reach out? Because you went to that very expensive private school on that generational wealth that your your family didn't earn. Which is 100% responsible for your whole career. Anybody can be Doctor Strange. Fight me. So you've decided to alienate our Marvel audience. (laughs) Cool, 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 cool. Thank you for that. Doctor Strange, that hard. If you love Doctor Strange, drop us a one-star <laughs> review and let me know that you are down bad for Doctor Agnosius Strange. I am excited for the new movie. I am too. I think Into the Multiverse is going to be really neat. I think it's going to be really fun. I'm way more excited for Love and Thunder. Obviously. Welcome to Talking Taika, a podcast within a podcast. Anyways... That's enough talking, Taika. We got to get back to the meat and potatoes. You may turn us off for our Marvel opinions, but you turn us back on for our romance novel, our thoughtful romance novel discussions. This week, as I said before, A Nun for a Viking Warrior. I picked this book. You did. Um, so I'm going to read the back of the book. Preesh. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. Forced to wed the warrior, falling for the man. Noble woman Ame Avru had pledged her life to God until her father promised her in marriage to thundering Norseman Jorund Jotunson. After escaping her overbearing father, Ame vows never to fall under another man's thumb, but her resistance to being Jorund's wife turns to desire as she gets to know her intriguing new husband. For beneath his fiery exterior, she's glimpsed an unexpectedly pure heart. If only she can penetrate the fortress that surrounds it. From Harlequin Historical, your romantic escape to the past. What a a short about the book for us. Not bad. Anything Anything jumping out at you? All of that is like, that's actually quite a fair elevator pitch. Yeah, it really is. I don't know if I would call Joran Jotunson thundering. He was at the very beginning. Yeah, you would say that's fair. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say it's, no, I wouldn't say it's fair, but I would say that it is accurate for chapter one. And then at no other point. <laughs> that's true. That's, that's, yeah, that's exactly right. Um, we also see that Ame vows never to fall under another man's thumb. But what is a nun but under the thumb of Jesus Christ? Bride of Jesus. A alleged man. I mean, Jesus is also stacked. <laughs> what do you mean Jesus was stacked? 
What do you mean? Have you ever seen a like really vivid crucifixion cross? Like he is stacked. Are you saying our Lord and Savior was caked up? No, I'm just saying like he's ripped and shredded and like not in the sense that he's had a spear thrown in his side and he's dying in the most disgusting and terrible way. I'm saying that Jesus has an eight pack on the cross for like reasons that I I continually don't understand. I'm like, I don't understand why he was a walker. You know, he just walked for three years in Judea. Walking doesn't make you that ripped. Well, you know, abs are more about how lean you are rather than how, like, punched up you are. That's a good point. But also, like, yeah, he looks like Tyler Durden in Fight Club, including racially. Yeah. In most of our popular depictions. (laughs) Which is also incorrect. Uh, Yeah. Uh, So being a bride of Christ, if you've got a bad dad, makes a lot of sense to me. Me too. He's hot. Like in this time period, especially like your your nightly excrete, your nocturnal emissions are going to be your probably a key way for you to get off. Although there's lots of records of nuns having um, rich and varied sexual lives. Um. So, speaking of which, why did I pick this book? Great question. Why did you pick this book? I chose this book. Entirely based on the cover and the title. So this was released and the fact that it was a category. And I kind of, because of our category series especially, but also just our general previous experience on this show, um, categories seem to be where like really interesting stuff is happening. I do think that this book kind of is a great example of that. And so I was excited to see a nun for Viking Warrior. I was like, where is this going? I will tell you the story in my head. She's a nun start to finish. Like. Based on that cover, that was also both my expectation and hope. Yeah. Like, I imagine, like, a Viking takes over her nunnery, and then for some reason they have to use it, like, in their, like, expansion. And so he's, like, posted up there, and she's like, oh, brother, not this Viking. And then they, like, enemies to lovers, right? I'm not going to TM that. I would love it if somebody wrote that book. (laughs) Me too. I would read that because she ditches the habit pretty quick. Yeah, what actually happens is in chapter one, the Vikings storm her nunnery and he's like, the whole reason I'm here, baby, the head of the Viking brigade is like, to marry you hot stuff because my best friend married your best friend and she was like we should get married because we're gonna start integrating here in is it france or england france it's francia here in francia um and so she has moved to the nunnery as the daughter of a nobleman but like a bad dad writ large and so she thought foolishly that she wasn't just in storage and so everyone at the nunnery immediately gives her up and she gets married to him and they return to her childhood home which this viking was given um via a contract with her father that He's illiterate, so the Viking doesn't know this. The Viking warrior, titular, Jorand, doesn't know that one of the stipulations is if she does not bear an heir within two winters, the property reverts back to her father. Pretty sneaky, sis. Um, and homegirl, she can read. She reads the contract. Doesn't say a word. She's like, fine. She she does keep that secret, although she does try to teach him to read, and he's like, I don't need this that much. And he, in exchange for her teaching him to read, he teaches her self-defense, um, which does come in handy yeah. pretty quickly. By the candlelight, so, they're doing knowledge exchange. The knowledge exchange was good. He's immediately charming. He is immediately charming, even when he gets a hard-on when he's trying to comfort her. He's a very charming. Yeah, their first romantic encounter. And when I was like, 
So I'm like a little disappointed because I'm like, oh, no, she's not going to be a nun for long in this book. But then we get a scene in chapter one or chapter two, early, early, early in the text where she's upset that she has to marry him and he comforts her. And then she's so like she becomes so like open to this shared affection and it's not like anything she's experienced in a really long time at the very least if ever and he becomes taken with her facial expression and she's very pretty even in her habit and so he kisses her and he immediately gets hard and she accidentally feels his erection and then like freaks out right which is yes it's a historical romance trope I was not expecting it here. I got like a little nervous that we might have encountered like something like an inspirational romance um, because like there was so much hullabaloo around partially because there was so much hullabaloo when this book was released around its cover and its title. And then I didn't really hear anything else after that. And I was like, oh, is this why? Is it because it's too niche? Um, but then I was like, OK, no, we're like down to clown. Or maybe inspirational romances have uh, pop tents all over the place. Maybe that's how they get around it. I, I think that that seems right. I mean, churning butter feels like a ripe metaphor for other stuff. <laughs> that's right. We um, did read an inspirational romance and there was no tent popping. There was no tent popping. So like, I also like, but it was charming the I don't know because like it also served to show the difference between their two cultures where it's like the Vikings are immediately characterized as earthy and like open about both their sexual desires and their drinking habits and like things like that like they don't have any of those secrets and she's like a very buttoned up Frankish noble woman and so she's like I don't even know what a penis is yeah (laughs) and so like it he's like it's a penis this is what they do and like you know it it, that pop tent served to do a couple of things all at once including you know disarm the viking warrior who literally just pounded down the door of the nunnery in a very explicit and violent metaphor and then he replaces the door really nicely with better hinges and pays the blacksmith. And so Mother Superior's like, hey, I'm really sorry that this like didn't go the way that you wanted and you're not going to be wed to Jesus. But um, your man here, he gave us a new door with better hinges and a lot. She was also so. very much like, it wasn't really going to work. It wasn't really working out anyways. You here. You're not very pious. Yeah, like, I don't think you were that into it. Like, you keep acting like you were that into it. I don't think you were that in awe. Yeah, so she's out of the habit by chapter two, which I was really disappointed by because, like, I wanted I wanted to be at the nunnery. I wanted to be – I didn't realize that I wanted to be in a book surrounded by women with, like, one or two really masculine forces. Yeah. Um, That would have been cool, but that wasn't Ugh. the book that we got. Oh, my God. Doesn't that sound like a great book, though? Yeah, dude. It sounds like a fucking awesome book. Please write it. So it is like a little bit of religious bait and switch, which uh, reminds me of Priest by Sierra Simone, which (laughs) I remember going on a rant about how, like, if you're going to role play, like, as Dracula, you don't just wear the cape, you know? Like, you got to, like, you can't just walk in and be like, I'm Dracula, because there's quite a few sex scenes in Priest all of them, in which he's not wearing his, like, little collar. Yeah, he's using other stuff, though, like the sacramental oil for unction, <laughs> It's dude. not enough for me. I want an outfit. <laughs> you know that I care more about an outfit. You do love outfits. I love to ornament myself, and I want to see others ornamented. That's the first thing I look at. Like, how do we know it's not just, like, regular old myrrh-scented lube? Because he pulled it out of the sacred cabinet in his office no like if you walked in if you walked in oh if i walked in knowing nothing else knowing nothing else i would be like who is this guy having anal sex with this woman in a priest's office why does it smell so much like sweaty myrrh and i would be like oh my god do they have myrrh scented lube like right i wouldn't be- I would have put those context clues together faster, but... I walk in, a guy's in his priest shirt <laughs> performing <laughs> anal sex and it smells like myrrh. I'm like, holy shit, that's a priest having anal sex and he's using 
holy oils as lubricant. Okay, the outfit matters. Okay, you've really painted that picture. Yeah, and this this book seems to also realize the outfit matters because we do eventually find out she's been wearing her habit this whole time. So while I expected this to be a different book, and I would still read very much look forward to reading the different book that it was, I would not say I was disappointed. But I am curious about this fact that like, we have yet to encounter a romance novel that kind of goes all in on religious uh, bells and whistles, right? Like priest is priest, but it's like, he also goes on Reddit. He's like, he's like so new Vatican. He's very new Vatican. Vatican II or whatever. Is that it? Vatican II? How do we Mm -hmm. know? Um, but Vatican II, <laughs> he's like so Vatican II, and our hair, our nun in this book isn't real, is like only a nun for chapter one, and then she's a wife for a Viking warrior, you know, a lady for a Viking warrior who happens to be wearing a nun's outfit. For some of the time. Yeah. I would say there's like an obvious answer there about people having like hangups about like in romance novels about going like all in on religious iconography and like references i think that probably goes two ways right because like the church has obviously been responsible for terrible things and has and continues to do terrible things Mm, around the world so like i think there's a space where authors would be like "Ooh, this might be like harmful and triggering and then the other space i think is like on the other side of that spectrum where it's like it feels sacrilegious and like there's a really thin needle the thread between those two if you want to go all in yeah um but the historical seems like a really good place to thread that needle because like it's far enough away potentially but you know who am i to say those things i was surprised by the bait and switch because her habit is very much like um who's that famous swedish woman who is in casablanca ingmar bergman she Not does Ingmar a big Bergman. Ingrid Bergman. <laughs> Ingrid Bergman. She does this like really good n- nun movie where she's like almost in love with the guy and like I think there's like there's a lot here about what like there like it's it's fertile ground for furtive sexuality. And so it like it feel it felt like a missed opportunity as soon as they left the nunnery where I was like, oh this okay. So now we're just gonna be at like a Frankish land holding. Okay. But there's also something sad because there is quite a bit of furtive sexuality that like lingers through the book, even though we get on page sex in this book. Um, there is still a lot of furtiveness and it's I think all the more twenty first century in the fact that like it doesn't have to lean on like religiosity as like a boundary. It's like an internal boundary between our Viking and our nun because they respect each other as human beings. And so that's a lot. That's so nice, you know, Mm -hmm. to not, to have, to make that, that fact explicit rather than leaning on, oh, like he wouldn't want to like two time on Jesus, you know. I don't think he cares about that, but. (laughs) That's a good point. It felt like a bait and switch, but I was also down for the new tangent, like the river fork. We also have to acknowledge, right, this is a, I don't know, we don't have to acknowledge anything, but I want to acknowledge that this is a category romance. And so there's all sorts of other like little marketing pieces at play here. Like you can buy a physical copy of this book. And so cover art, SEO is a lot more refined. So the exact type of hero is like in the title, a Viking warrior. Just like when we read the secret CEO book, right? Like mm-hmm. people who are searching for secret and CEO, this book would come up for them. Like people who are searching for Viking, this would come up for them. Which brings me to like another red flag for this text that, you know, in addition to like, oh, did I, is this an inspirational romance novel, which is to say a very religious romance novel. I also was concerned about the Vikingness of it because Viking has become, I think, a little bit of a dog whistle and maybe like a pipeline, like interest in Vikings towards white supremacy. Yes. And I was deeply concerned after I bought the book that those themes would 
come into play because I, I just see so much of it. First of all, Viking is not a race or a culture. It was a job in Nordic culture. So people will be like, like, I know they say workplace culture, but that's just one of the ways that they get you to like work. It's one of the ways that they get you. <laughs> and so I was, I was very weary of that. But I think this book is actually much more interested in like the general history about this like very early European stuff than it is about specifically Nordic history. Mm -hmm. I would say that's super true. Like we don't spend any time really on Joran's discussion of even what his culture might be. Like he spent some time with his mom and they're all a bunch of shield maidens, which is like barely sketched. There's some bad stuff with his dad, which is about raiding, as you correctly note, a job um but it's much more about like the integration of like how can i foreign oppressor who's now married into the land and have you know learned the language haltingly and i'm mm. trying to integrate like how can i get the people of this place the serfs to trust me and like do the things that i need them to do um, and so in that way, I'm actually trying to look for the name of the author that this book reminded me of. Uh, while you're doing that, I want to point out that there is a great scene where she asks him where he was born and he says, oh, here, like I've been here my whole life. Mm -hmm. And so I think like divorcing this idea of. In this text, divorcing this idea of, like, a cultural identity from place mm -hmm. um, for her mm -hmm. was pretty fuck. It was pretty woke. <laughs> it didn't feel woke, but it also, like, I was glad that it wasn't doing the thing that I, too, was afraid that it might be trying to do. Elizabeth Kingston is the name of the person that I was trying to think of. She writes in the medieval space, and she did an incredible... Uh, presentation about how some romance authors are utilizing the uh, trappings of white supremacist movements, especially in the United States and Britain, as like coded white supremacy in their text. So like, that's one of the things that you might encounter in medieval and Viking romance and like be on guard for it. Yeah. Um, because those things are being taken over by like, you know, so why would you say that that didn't come across as woke, that moment when she is set back on her heels for her assumptions about his status as an outsider? Because he still had all the power, essentially. And so, like, for her to be like, oh, I was thinking about you incorrectly. And I was like, he still has all the guards. He still has all the weapons. He's like, in like, well, it that's was a just like. the difference between like pr prescient power and like institutional power. Like her father has him. All she has to do is not get pregnant. Something that he's said he's okay with. For two winters, and he loses all of that. He loses, like, his land holdings. And she's the one who holds that knowledge and chooses not to share it with him. And, like, I wouldn't say, like, that makes her – like, I, I think she's vulnerable in this position. But I think her making those assumptions about him is nonetheless, like, a misplaced assumption. And I think the fact that he is saying, like, oh, no, actually, like, me plus – a lot of the people here who you probably made the same assumption about are actually, we're actually also born here. Yeah, and most of our dads were farmers. Like that idea of like her, I think she came to it feeling like she had some kind of like a more, she was more entitled to that place because of the fact that she was from it. He's also from that space. So being like put back in the, I think having that assumption cha challenged even I mean I think that's especially prescient because as white women we often forefront our position as like an oppressed class and aren't conscientious of the ways that our assumptions are also oppressive and can be challenged so for example you know making if a white woman were to ask a man of color, like, 
oh, where are you from? And he says, Denver. And she goes, oh, no, like, where are where you are from? Where are you really from? Right? Like, would you say, I, I wouldn't say, like, it's not. I mean, that's oh. coded racism. But I think what she's doing is coded racism. It's not racism because they're both white, but it is an assumption that she has about him that's negative. Coded, okay. So racism as we understand it today is about, uh, it, it, it doesn't exist the same way it does historically, right? Like, sure. This book was written within that context and uh, our current context. And so I think it is possible that that is a coding. Potentially. Again, like, didn't read it that way. 100% just read it as like, oh, you know, he's not the only one making assumptions. This is how they grow together. Like, where's the slippage there? I don't know that there is slippage. Like, Well, you said it like wasn't woke. I didn't read it as woke. What What's missing there to make it woke? Honestly, it felt contrived to me. Like her being like, oh, now I have to think about. Wokeness can be contrived. Um, I guess it didn't feel earned or earnest. And so in those ways for her, like it. It felt like a plot device that, like, was for the two characters and not, like, a broader discussion about, like, the Frankish aversion to the uh, Nordic culture coming into contact with them. Like, and you, and you, and it's because those are, like, two white cultures. No, it was. Because of how it was written, like, I think, like, if he had been something else, it would have struck me the same way. Because it was very much like, huh, now I have to do some hard thinking about myself. And I was like, do you? Like, okay. <laughs> I guess I just understand that as being, like, woke. Like, having your cha- your assumptions challenged and then being like, oh, I guess that that's more about me than about them. I guess. Well, that's very dismissive, I guess, but we can move on. The <laughs> I like I, it's okay that we disagree on this. Like it just didn't strike me that way. Yeah, it's fine though. Like let's move on. Like one of the other things that I think is striking about this book, especially in comparison with a book we recently read called Dragonbound, is that this book, like we said, is not very like captivated by midi- like the trappings of Viking culture. Um, big air quotes on that because as we've discussed, it's a job. Um, it's not as captivated by that. It's more interested in like the the time period, right? So we get like a lot of political machinations, explanations of transference of power. We also get like a lot of stuff about architecture, which is also true of Dragonbound, but here it works for me. And I don't know if that's because it's historical, right? So it's different and therefore interesting, whereas like corporate headhunting and like take hostile takeovers is just feels like a Gordon Gecko thing, which seems less interesting to me. But it's not like I've ever been particularly like tantalized by this era and place in history. I think one of the things that this book did really successfully is like unyoke itself from a kind of particularity and so like she's talking at one point she's like my grandfather who built this part of the castle went so far as Constantinople and like he you know met all these people and like that's why we have this particular arch built this particular way and then like later she's like and here are the Roman ruins and he's like who are the Romans and she's like oh my god they wrote all this stuff down and like I learned about them in the nunnery with all these illuminated texts and He's like, that's cool, you know? And so, like, again, it's just this reminder that, like, France as we know it is a a pretty modern construct and that, like, lots of different people have constantly been moving in and out of these spaces. And I thought the architecture discussion of that was a really good way to access that point where it's, like, in many ways, like, 
Joran is just one of the, you know, the newest of the newcomers. Yeah. Right. And I, I think I appreciated what this book had to say. And maybe like the reason I'm more cool with it is like, I appreciate what the statement is, which is I tend to get really irritated with people who are frustrated by changes where I'm like, well, you know, like that building you really loved that's getting knocked down. There's a lot of others like it that are still preserved and still in existence. And we have this full record of it. And at one point it replaced other um, buildings. Right. So we've got to make way for the next this thing. (laughs) Um, and so I, I did appreciate that message more than I think I appreciated, like, the non-message of Dragonbound. Maybe that's why. Or maybe it's just because. Also, I would say, like, the way the political conversation moved is in relation to a relationship that I, in relation to a relationship, was, like, part of the development of a relationship that I was interested in because I'm reading a romance novel. And I think a lot of what happened in Dragonbound was, like, independent and apropos of nothing to do with their kissing. Whereas these two people's ability to navigate politics directly relates to their ability to smooch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and directly relates to their ability to have a relationship at all slash make the the town work. And I always find, like, the stakes of... Like, this kind of discussion, especially because, like, the townsfolk are brought in. They're really afraid of their new lord and his people because they've suffered grievously at the hands of other Vikings. Um, Also, these Vikings. Also, these Vikings. Um, And so, like, having the central relationship also then function as like a sort of stand-in or mirror for how the town and the other people like Joran's guard are going to function together I think always raises the stakes of the relationship in a way that I find satisfying because it's not it's like we're not just building the relationship together we're building like the village that we intend to live in like we're building the community and I always really like that and it seems like medieval spaces are really it, it's that's an easy reach that's not hard to do johanna Lindsay's medievals are really like that too where it's like you build the team out and i <laughs> i like it when the relationship is central to the team building i also like that as far as this relationship progresses and it this does relate to the progression of the like politics and stakes in the novel is that nothing ever likes like a problem never stays longer than it makes sense Mm-hmm. So, like, initially she's not going to tell him what's in the contract because she wants to get out of it. And she wants to go back to the nunnery. And then she eventually decides that she's not going to go back to the nunnery, that she's going to commit to this and she's going to try. So now we have this new commit issue of her willingness to commit versus her suspicions about his relationship with his close friend who happens to be of the opposite sex in this book. Yeah. Falda. And who's a shield maiden and they're very close. And so that's a problem only as far as it makes sense when her friend comes to visit and is like, oh, I think you've got like a weird hang up about this and you should just talk to him. And then she does. Um, Even though she's, you know, very frothy when she does it, I think. I feel like Valda is like a revolving problem. She unpeels a little bit like an onion. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, right, that just makes it like earned. Mm -hmm. Like her assumption then makes sense, right? Like her her feelings start to make sense. Um, And I think the final piece of being like able to open up about her past trauma naturally progresses from that conversation about Valda. Like everything kind of pieces together and we don't get hung up. I think a lot of romance novels like choose one issue and then just write it out the whole way. Like I'm thinking of Flesh and the Devil, which is a doorstop that the whole conflict is these two people won't just be like, I like you, you know. It just goes on and on yeah. and on and on and on. And so then everything else around the relationship has to become more interesting and more Baroque. Whereas this book really, like, you, the relationship itself, as I think romance, if I'm talking about, like, an archetypal platonic ideal romance novel, that's how it should be. 
everything should be around this romantic relationship. And this book does that super well. Yeah, I think it does. Yeah. It might kind of dovetail into sexiest part. Sure. Would you like to go first? What was your sexiest part? Well, my sexiest part is when we discovered that she was still wearing her habit. like sweet little intimate moments and she's decided that she's going to commit to this relationship and that she's all in and she goes to tell Yorin like hey I wasn't really in this before and now I am and she sees him without his shirt on shaving and she becomes like arrested and he sees that she's open and wants to be open with her and so he kisses her and pins her against the wall and then rips her habit um and then very unluckily valda interrupts them on flagrante because she has something to report but it's one of those once again like platonic ideal romances where a scene that's just about kissing is very very hot very very sensual very sensorial and can last for paragraphs just kissing Mm -hmm. uh, which I think I've been missing for a while I get that that is a very very good scene it's it's kind of a showstopper frankly yeah it's such a great hinge point sometimes I feel like I don't know this is one of those situations where I've like read this so recently and I'm like hey that kind of sucked in the other books they weren't as good as this one yeah I think like romance relies heavily on these like bombastic hinging sex sexual encounters I think that's not always it doesn't always make sense and it doesn't doesn't always go somewhere that makes sense and it also is just not as good because it goes too far maybe whereas this one I think stops at the exact right moment and I think it's right that like you say that it was like born pretty domestically like nothing like there's no whiff of death he's literally just like in front of like his morning window just like shaving and she has this thing that she wants to tell him and then he's like he looks at her and it's like we're in her carnality for him which is also very nice and like many times when I was reading this book I'm like so Morris is just writing about Alexander Skarsgård like he's got shorter than normal Viking hair he's got big blue eyes like the sky <laughs> like he's clean shaven he's clean I'm like this is a hot man that like I can easily imagine wanting to climb yeah <laughs> and so that scene of him just being like hey what's up I'm like oh hello yeah and it even made, like, one of my least favorite tropes, which is little buddy Howard, big old hero, like, seem kind of, like, interesting and fun. Yeah. I do so get – I just get so irritated with it. It is irritating. One of the things that drives me that I think is, like, very annoying is that men are all, like, you know, six foot like it matters. And I'm like, well, that's ridiculous. But then, like, women do talk about height a lot. I have talked about being like, oh, he's tall, he's hot, right? Like, culturally, we have. (laughs) By the way, being hot is at once, like, an incredible, like, being tall to being hot is at once an incredibly low threshold, as well as being an impossible one, because you're just born the height you are. Mm -hmm. But, like, I also think I move in tall girl circles quite frequently. (laughs) None of my... Friends who are over like five, six have ever said to me, like, I preferred, like, I would only ever date a tall guy. But my friends who are shorter say it all the time. That is interesting. And then they say stuff like, because I'm pretty short already. And it's like, so you wouldn't date someone who's shorter than you? No, because their progeny would be too short. Like, that is like the end of that comment. You know what I mean? Which is also fucking weird. weird. Yeah. Yeah. That's a weird thing to think about. That's a weird thing to think, for sure. Um, And it's also like tall men present probably like, this is so, I'm just going to do it. Why not? Tall men present like a greater threat to short women (laughs) than they do to tall women and so maybe short women are just like maybe there's something in like 
appeasement, like predator appeasement, where they're like, I love you and I think you're the best kind of man because you're just the biggest, you know, <laughs> instead of being like trying to like mitigate a threat. That's so absurd. I said it. I said it into a microphone. I recorded it. <laughs> I'm like, we're going to keep it for it, the episode. I thought it and I said it. But what if that's it? Like, there's a possibility that that's part of it. I think it's, like, definitely, like, defanging the thing. But I think that's, like, in heterosexual relationships. Like, did I tell you this insane fact that the number one killer of pregnant women last year was COVID? And it beat out for the first time the number one killer of pregnant women every year running that they've been keeping that statistic. Do you know what that number one killer is? Men. Men! Yeah. Literally murder. Yeah. Number one killer of pregnant women in the United States is murder yeah. until COVID happened. And so, like, I think, I don't know, like, you know, we're always constantly negotiating the heterosexual power struggle of this whole thing. And yeah. it's like, I think there might be even more to it if you are an in- a demure, shorter oh, woman. Yeah. I who, guess it's like, like having the volume turned up on your, like, if you're a really tall man, like, you read as more masculine automatically. And Mm -hmm. if you're a very small woman, you read as more feminine automatically. Automatically. And feminine is... Vulnerable. Yeah. No, no, I was right. Everything I said was exactly (laughs) right. And I regret nothing about it. Whether or not it's like as conscious as we've just surfaced, probably not. But like, you know. Yeah. And I would also say it's not like... People who are like 5'3 are looking at men who are 5'8 and being like, wow, you're so tall. Even though relatively, like, in relation, they're all like, six foot and above, please. So then I don't know what this says about me because my sexiest part is they're the first part of their first sex scene when he goes on his knees and starts cunnilingus us there. And I'm like, yes, tall man, be on your knees, be shorter. <laughs> But, like, I didn't know that I wanted Cunnilingus to start not on a bed until I read that scene. And I was like, that is absolutely what I wanted. Um, And it's hot. And he's like, and then, you know, there's, like, this really funny part where she's like, I think you did it wrong because, like, his penis isn't inside of her. And he's like, no, I did it right. (laughs) Do you know, what a, like, charming and sexy and funny way to handle the idea of, like, a absolute virgin right so cute so funny so charming like adorable for both of them but then there's all this stuff of like i i don't want to be on top because what if i crush you and in fact one of his like greatest concerns is that he's so big and she's so small um what if he like has a night terror and crushes her yeah, gross. But whatever. I've seen it before. This wasn't the worst version of Let that. Let me know. That I've what's seen. your weirdest part? You go first. Velda is okay. my weirdest part. So I loved Velda mm-hmm. off the bat. I think um, there's a really. She functions really well to both humanize and give Jorand a space to explicitly vocalize, but also a space to, like, have internality next to her, where she'll say something and then he'll have thoughts. And he's like, yeah, you're right. I should, you know, approach um, Ame. How are we pronouncing her name? I was saying Amy, but I know my accent is the wrong place. Yeah, I think Amy's good. It will eventually become Amy. um, Amy, yeah. So I was like, um, you know, I'm like, so Valda's kind of like functioning to be like, you should talk to Amy. You should talk to your wife about this. Like, have you thought about just explaining it to her? And like, he'll have a conversation with Valda and then he'll like think about it. And I thought like that was all functioning really well. And then initially, because they're so close, Amy believes that they have a sexual relationship. And as we talked about earlier, she's jealous and doesn't like it. And then her friend shows up and is like, hey, like, it's cool that he's got this other lady because, like, you're his wife and, like, you're going to bear his heirs. And, like, you know, like, get over it. Like, that's a you thing, not a him thing. And I was like, okay, like, that's fine. Also, we know that he has no sexual animus toward Velda at all. And I totally assumed when the book told me that Velda also didn't have it 
that that was correct. I felt it. Here we go. Talk about assumptions. Okay. I thought Velda was a lesbian and maybe a little bit in love with I Amy. I thought so too. I thought so too. I thought like, and like that was going to be the thing. And so like she would never hurt Amy. She said like, that. She'd it's have like that to in leave. the book. I know. And I was like, it was going to be so much more interesting for me for Velda to be into Amy and then like have Amy be like, holy shit, it never occurred to me. But for like the big reveal is that she's been carrying this torch for Jorand. And I'm like... Oh, but why, though? Why couldn't they just be fucking awesome buds? And even if she was straight, which also boring, like, why couldn't she have, like, found some Frankish dude or, like, a blacksmith or, like, a non-warrior that would have challenged her and, like, you know, Brienne of Tarth did a bit. Like, I was so upset when Amy, when Amy's worst assumptions about Velda were confirmed in that not that Velda was sleeping with Jorand, but that Velda did harbor this entente, this tenderness for Jorand that Jorand didn't see and that Amy in her like womanly, wifely whatever was like really attuned to. And I was like, that's Velda comes up with the nickname Little Bird, starts referring to Amy as Little Bird. She's caught, like, staring at Amy from across courtyards. All the time. She's thinking about Amy's feelings. She's encouraging Jorand to acknowledge and anticipate and work through Amy's feelings. Yeah, no, I think we were right to assume that Valda was definitely feeling a tundra for Amy. And this book just, like, pulled the plug at the last second, which, like unnecessary but we do get that great moment where her friend who is supposedly who i'm sure might be the subject of it who i'm sure might be the subject of another (laughs) category romance right she's married to like the big chief of the vikings um she says well i actually love my husband's mistress and like they were together before I ever showed up and so like maybe you should just be like a little bit more groovy about this whole thing and that's like not Mm -hmm. considered like I love the part where like Amy like takes that on board and is like yeah you're right Mm -hmm. like you know I'm I haven't even tried to consider that which is like a cool part and the book doesn't like problematize um her friend's relationship with Papa (laughs) mistress But, like, which is really cool, you know, and I think speaks to, like, cultural relativity and things like that. There's also Mm -hmm. a great moment where Amy realizes that, like, she's not going to be able to live that way, which is also, like, fair and valid, right? Like, it's a book that validates both sides of that conversation. Yeah. The only thing it doesn't validate is Velda. Yeah. It just says, like, oh, she actually is in love with him. I mean, I wish I could be that, like, elegant about being in love with my best friend when he marries someone. I wish I could be Valda. I guess. I just very much felt like justice for Velda. But I feel like we were 100% set up to think. Both of us made that assumption. Thought that's where the story was going. And that might be queer baiting. That does feel like queer baiting. Justice for Velda. Yes, 100%. My weirdest part was another ancillary character, a little figure Mm -hmm. known as Amy's dad. (laughs) (laughs) In a book that carries, like, so much nuance, we have just a pile of bad dad. So Amy's father is a lord, and he married, I think the land that Amy is now on was her mother's, and her mother brought it into the marriage. Her mother had what we, had some kind of depression, um, and we find out that, just a trigger warning, her mother uh, did kill herself um, when Amy was very young, and Amy unfortunately witnessed part of it. Um and is regularly reminded of the materiality around it. And we get a resolution 
when Yorand removes the sight of her mother's death um, as a sort of liberation to her. Her father is just like a philanderer. He has very little empathy for her mother and like bails as soon. Like he's just like a very classic romance novel character. And it's not that I'm saying like it's distracting and it's not like I'm saying it's bad. I'm just saying it makes I wonder why it was done that way in this book. And I can't find a satisfactory reason. Yeah, he's definitely the thinnest sketched. He's definitely our villain. Although this book doesn't even really need a villain because it's complicated enough. Like, I think that's one of the things that's disappointing about the bad dad where it's like, there's enough here in the trauma between our two main characters trying to integrate their two cultures without bringing in this like whole subplot where the dad has a bounty on Amy's head. It's like, I'm like, that's like, Hall of Fame bad dad. Not only did he, like, write the contract that an illiterate man can't read, he also then tries to have his daughter murdered. He almost would have been more captivating if he had been kept completely off the page. Yeah, as, like, a big scary shadow. I also find that in books, especially romance novels, we're constantly writing and reading about ourselves, which are the type of people who will consume books on an almost daily basis. And that's who Amy is. Mm-hmm. Even in mm-hmm. her like very limited historical capacity for having books, she's constantly reading books. And like her whole personality is books. And mm-hmm. how much she loves books and teaching um, children. I like the fact that, like, Yorand isn't considered, like, amoral or somehow lacking for his, like, inability to read and also his disinterest in books. He does learn enough to read in the afterword, though, where he can, like, carve into stone a acknowledgement of his marriage and his, the birth of his child into the um, actual structure. I wonder if that's real and if that's what ex- inspired Lucy Morris. Like, there's still a wall standing with that inscription i think literacy like look obviously like literacy matters deeply but i think there's this like end all be all in books of like books are the shit like these romance novels are constantly talking about how like bitchin books are I think there's a really lovely part where they're we're ta- where they're talking about that, and I think the book comes down on Amy's side. But he's like, "Well, it's, it's not like we don't have stories; they're just right. oral histories, and like you get a bard to sing it, and like and then it's like communal, and it's this whole thing." And she's like, "Yeah, but like that's subject right. to change, and anybody could change it." And I was like, "That also means like interpretation, Bubba." Just wait till you see when I get on <laughs> Ao3 with this shit. <laughs> I know I just like and so like I loved that they had that he's like oh what you're talking about like I understand that feeling because of the sagas and she's like no these are better and I was like she's basically saying like they're just better than movies yeah that's exactly (laughs) what she said and I was like I don't know I like being around a fire and like having someone sing or lecture at me yeah and it's like (laughs) It can't be like, I like books and also movies, or I just like movies, or I only like to read magazine articles. It has to be like, no, books are the superior form of entertainment. And that's just like a little peeve. Just a little, just a new little peeve for me to notice in every book for the next six months. That seems right. I think we should call that out. (laughs) Literacy is important, but it's also not the only form of storytelling. Yeah, and it's, like, not the only, like, worthy way to spend your time. There are people who, like, and it, like, also happens in this day and age with people being, like, audiobooks aren't the same as reading. I hate it when people say that because people take it so seriously. And, like, I had a student who literally told me, I haven't read any books this year. And I was like, oh, okay. Like, so what do you do? And she was like... Well, I listen to books. And I'm like, that's reading. Like, you are reading with your brain. Like, why does it matter if, like, you know, 
dicky arms read it to you <laughs> like you still read that and it book. also makes me think that like oh so people who aren't sighted just can't read yeah i just like that's like why why would you why would you say that like why would you say that it's cheating like what a fucking terrible yeah thing like there's something inherent in the actual like physical process of reading a text that it makes it like better I don't I don't buy it. I don't buy it and I don't believe it. I don't buy Some it. Some of the books that we've read, my time would have been better. I would be more culturally enriched by just watching the IT crowd again. Like my life would be better <laughs> off if I had just done that instead of reading this book. Not this book, but books yes, that not we have. this book. Which I want to ask you, Womance or a nomance? So I thought about this question a lot because this book falls into that nether realm for me of like, I obviously enjoyed myself in parts. I thought there was a lot happening that was good. I see the value. It just like did not ring my bell enough. And so like, because we have this very intense standard of romance or no man's, I'm like, I'm not Mm -hmm. sad that I read it. I would likely recommend this yeah. to some people. But I'm not going to recommend it with the full-throatedness of other books, which means that it has to be a no okay. for me. Do you want to talk – I think that, you know, that's a very, like, soft negative review. But I think, like, all negative yes. reviews tend to help me out more than other people. So I'm imagining – I'm a, I haven't read this book. Why – where does it come up short for you? Velda, absolutely. Also, I felt very tricked that it was a nun (laughs) for the Viking warrior, and she's a nun for 10 seconds. Um, And just in, like, those two ways were enough for me to be, like, to move it from five star to that, like, 3.5. Like, everything else that we've talked about, I stand by, I think, like, you know, it just... Because of those couple of missteps, it just didn't zing the way that I think it could For have. me, it's going to be a romance because the ending for Velda is disappointing, but I feel like living in the headcanon that she was in love with Amy makes it very worthwhile. And like maybe you as a reader can just know that it's going to disappoint you and just pretend like it's not going to happen and just pretend like the – much better story that Isabeau and I created in our heads as we were reading is present. The sex scenes are sexy. The love scenes are sexy. One of those really great heroes who does pretty much everything right and is just very good at being a loving human being and like so sad. Like you get that like real satisfaction. I was excited to also return to this world and learn about like to be in this like world that I don't think it's discussed much in romance novels at least not in this way like uh, joanna Lindsay, she'll do a medieval romance but it's all like the sword was swordy swordy sword sword here's 18 things about the swords uh whereas this book had a much more like day-to-day i'm much more interested in like lived like day-to-day history work-a-day history mm-hmm. um than that kind of thing so i i very much enjoyed this it was like a medieval Viking slice of life. I and I think it's I think if you're into that kind of thing, plus sex, mm-hmm. you're gonna love it. Just like I did. So this is gonna be a woe from Morgan. Morgan, you picked out a good book for yourself. Good job. Uh, one thing I will say, we should have probably said this in the beginning. The trauma for these characters, their past traumas, is on page. We get flashbacks, and it is really brutal. So some trigger warnings for this book, um, which are not included in the back of the book because it's a Harlequin historical, kind of a bummer, Um, suicide, uh, rape, um, and, um, you know, the things that go along with pillaging, violence, burning down, buildings, starvation. Yeah, and it's. It's on page. But it's handled in a way that's, like, not exploitative, I don't think. I didn't feel like it was. With that. Loosen your stays. But never your principles. Mwah! 
Woli guacamole, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of Womance. Womance is hosted, produced, and edited by my friend Morgan. And by my friend Isabel. Our logo artwork is by another friend, Mary Reichman. You can find her on Instagram at m.reichman, spelled R-E-I-S-C-H-M-A-N-N. Original music by Nick Gravelin. And our webmistress is Jane Bonzak. They're the best. You're also the best. We so appreciate your support by listening. Please consider taking this to the next level by following, rating, and reviewing. We read every single review. Or even check us out on Patreon. If you'd like more woe in your life, you can connect with us on Instagram at womance and on Twitter where we are at mans underscore woe. Or you can find more episodes and content at womancepodcast.com. If you have an idea or just want to reach out, please email womancemail at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Womance is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts to add to your romance collection at frolic.media backslash podcasts. Until next time.